buckle up. Welcome to Musicians and Beyond special multi-part series under the covers with Ernie Sheffaloo. Your host, John Sarabian and Mark Lawhorn are going to expose the history-making journey of this iconic figure and his contributions to the music and corporate world. Today's part, we're going to be talking with Ernie about his Craig Braun album cover, the Rolling Stones tongue, Grand Funk Railroad, uh, his Rolling Stones merchandise. There's just an action-packed part. We hope you enjoy it and remember to share it with your friends. Yeah, we're ready. Let's uh, let's talk with Ernie Sheffalo in uh, under the covers. And we're going to find Let's out. all get under the covers together here. Let, let's do it. Let's do it. And we'll yeah. sing Kumbaya. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. No, we're getting into the, the nitty gritty of this. This is what the a lot of the listeners want to hear about. It. it. It's about not only his corporate work that he's done in the past, but he's done a lot of album covers. And uh, yeah, you know, he, he's somewhat known for album covers and, and the work he did with the music uh, industry. Yeah, yeah, you think? He's come, he's I've done a couple. Yeah. I've done a couple. Drop a couple names, Mark. Who did you do the most for? Alice Cooper? Yeah, 13 albums for Alice. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then it would be Black Oak, Arkansas, mm-hmm. with eight. And then uh, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, you know, Burton Cummings with six. You know, there were a few like that that kept coming back. But sometimes, you know, a lot of them were just one-time things. Like I did uh, a Greatest Hits for uh, The Fifth Dimension. Wow. I did a Greatest Hits for The Monkees. You know, and those were packages that we just got a, a photograph and we had to make something out of it. You know, you know, that happened a lot. And they were usually one time, you know, um, and that was another good reason to have another foot in corporate America, because at after, you know, the the real buzz and the craziness that went on in the album cover design world really happened from like from 1969 to maybe the early 80s. By the mid 80s, it was over what I call the golden age of custom and interactive album packaging. Okay, because the idea was to to be able to do something that would let the fan do more than just sit and look at pictures and read lyrics and put a record on a turntable. You know, it was involving them more. And that's why we did a lot of crazy packages, you know, and billion dollar babies and you know, Rolling Stones with the zipper and, you know, all these different, you know, we had a Jefferson airplane package, Long John Silver, that folded up into a, a, a cigar box, you know, to clean your pot in. You know, I mean, it was, and, and people loved it. I mean, they just really, I mean, because think about the time that was in the early 70s we did that. And people were, I mean, it was great because we used to listen to a lot of radio. There was no internet and there was really nothing, no television, you know, that all came later. And then it was just the publications, Record World, Cashbox, Billboard. Those were the three. And then you had uh, a small section in the Hollywood Reporter, but it was mainly radio, disc jockeys, guys that would get an album and talk about it. You know, and I remember plenty of times we'd be in the art department of Pacific Ironier and, you know, the disc jockey would start talking about the album cover we did. You know, this billion dollar babies and it's got a big, oh, my God, look at this. And the Cheech and Chong got a big cigarette paper. And, you know, it was it, it was a whole experience for the disc jockey, too, because the managers like Chef Gordon, when Greatest Hits came out, he had guys dressed like mafia guys with violin cases like the mob used to carry the machine guns in. Right. And so they'd show up at the radio station like that. And there'd be a mall with them and they, and they give the new, they give the disc jockeys the new release, you know I mean? And, and so it was a, uh, it was all a big part of it. Greatest hits for Alice Cooper. We did a Coke mirror 
with the logo on it, and, and you got a little kit with a gram of coke, a, a tutor, a razor blade to chop it up. That all went to the disc jockeys. Those <laughs> things are collector's items today. You know, I mean, it's it's really kind of crazy. But that's how that's how crazy the record business was. It was really a perfect time for us. We were, like I said before, I would describe us as what they would call today disruptive. You know, we really all, always pushed the envelope. And you'll see from coming shows where we did some crazy stuff. But we we were consistent. We And I think that's what the record guys like. That's what not so much the record companies, because we were competitors, but the groups. The groups loved it. Like I said last time, you know, Alice loved us because we were crazier than they were. We'd come to them with stuff that they would just have no idea that, you know, that we could do something like this. So it was really kind of a, a neat client to have. And hopefully you could find that same kind of client in corporate America. And I did. There, there were a few at Nestle. The guy, I think I told you, the guy I was there for 30 years, the guy that hired me, you'd swear he was a, a, a narcotics officer. He was a straight, he, you'd sit in a meeting, you'd be scared. You think you're going to arrest you. Is that straight looking? And he'd go home at night and take his suit off and put on his headband and light up his lava lamp and smoke a fatty and listen to Grateful Dead. But during the day, he was, you know, Joe Corporate America. And, but love the fact that we had a music background, you know. And so it was a, it was a great thing. But the music, it's funny, the music stuff has always been an influence, sometimes bad, but most of the time good. You know, when people hear some of the things that I've done, they, you know, you get their attention. It's like me telling you, yeah, I've had, you know, I've had some museums. I've had a gallery show here and there. I've had an 18 month show at the Smithsonian that gets a whole nother respect for you and puts you in a whole. And some of these album covers are the same way. I mean, I've heard people say that that Rolling Stones tongue that I did is the most recognized icon in the world. I'm going to agree with that. It, It definitely is. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely would be. I and mean, you again, could show that to it, anyone in the world and they'd, they'd know what yeah. it is. You could go to, uh, you know, New Guinea and find a guy in a gumbo hut on the beach and show him that logo <laughs> and he'd go Rolling Stones, you know. And it's because music is the universal communicator. You can put 100 people in a room, not any of them speaking the same language, and you start playing some music and pretty soon you got everybody's getting it to the rhythm, to the beat. You know, that's music is such a powerful force. And I started to realize that, you know, as a fan in college and the Beatles came out and that changed everything because things were now different. Every album was different. There was nothing in the next album that was like the album before it. And people were so used to that, that kind of, well, I don't hear Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. I hear, you know, other stuff. And, and But the Beatles really changed all that. And and so for us, it became really, uh, and for me, it became a really once uh, something that I gravitated toward. So starting with the Dolls Alive piece, you know, that was the major international paper company sales meeting, uh, was the first use of the lips for the Rolling Stones. That was done in 1970. And who would have known, but a year, year later, 1969, 70, a year or so later, it's now the logo for the Rolling Stones. Because, and we were talking about that in the last show, about how you have an idea for something, and whether it's used or not, and then maybe the next thing you get, you know, has to do with that. And that's what happened here. When I did that pair of lips on that Dolls Alive thing, I had no idea that it was going to be the logo for the Rolling Stones. But the guy that I met with, 
knew that he needed a logo for the Rolling Stones. And what I came to find out from that Goldmine magazine, because Ivor never shared it with me, he interviewed all these different people. And the way it came out, including this guy in England that's the utmost uh, Rolling Stones collector has everything. When they need something, they they will borrow it from him. They lease it from him. Um, He said that what happened was John Pache had done a logo, They had showed it to Marshall Chess. Marshall showed it to Craig Braun, and they reverse engineered it when he saw my logo and had me do a second version. Nobody knows why. I think it's because, you know, uh, that's what the Rolling Stones really thrives on is controversy. Things that aren't, you know, I'm sure that's, you know, even though Mick Jagger has weighed in, you know, and said that they went to John Pache in this art college and stuff and had him do this logo based on a Shiva goddess you know, that he saw with his tongue out, you know, I think that that may be true. It may not be true. I don't really care. You know, my logo was used at the same time Pache's was, you know, and those were the main two. Those were the only two. Now there's dozens. Everybody's done a different version and used it for something different. But, you know, mine was used for the merchandising. Pache's was used on the album, you know, and, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm just happy to be in the top two. We talked about that before, you know, right. even the top three is good. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's better to be two or three. Yeah, especially no, if you want to go home and have a life. You, you're very humble about it. I mean, you've always given Pache credit. You've never- well, that's because his logo, his logo is better than mine. Yeah. His logo reflects the Rolling Stones. Okay. More. His logo is like a gesture drawing. A gesture drawing is something that's drawn quickly to capture the movement of the figure. Okay. And inside, it doesn't even look like a figure. It's just lines, thick and thin and moving. And Pache captured that in the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger is all over that stage. He doesn't stand there and sing like a lot of them do or sit at an instrument and sing. He's all over that stage. He is more animated. And now in his like late 70s, 80, whatever the hell he is, he's still with a hip surgery and a heart thing and all the rest of it. He's still all over that stage. That's what makes the Rolling Stones the greatest rock and roll band in the world ever, ever. I don't think anybody will ever surpass them, but you can never say never. You know, and maybe it's time for something like that. I was watching a documentary on uh, the guy that was the lead singer in in excess. Yeah. And how he killed himself. And I'll tell you, that guy was like a young Mick Jagger. I remember when we were working with uh, Aerosmith and people were comparing Steven Tyler to Mick Jagger, you know, but none of them have had the longevity and the stay there, staying power that the Rolling Stones have had, you know, and now they're just even so some people would say that their new albums aren't anywhere near as good as what they were. It doesn't matter. They're still out there. It's like Picasso. He, on his way down to the ground dying, he made a mark on a wall. Okay. <laughs> that may not be as nice as some of the other stuff you did, but it's a Picasso. Okay. And you got to respect it. <laughs> right. So, you know, that, and the Rolling Stones have achieved that, you know, that stature. And I'm again, so proud that mine was used along with his. And, and mine is more staid. Mine is more corporate, which is the world that I came from. If you look at the Jesus Christ Superstar, it's corporate. It's, it's like a brand. Why it may have been used for the merchandising, because it, it can sell and, and, and because it represents maybe. a broader uh, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. Yeah, a, a safer, broader, cast a broader net. Absolutely. You know, and that could be a good reason why. I think part of it was due to have the controversy, you know, and it's been said that, 
you know, and I've heard it from reliable sources that the reason why they went to that art school to get an unknown artist is they didn't have to pay him as much, you know, which is true. You know, I mean, when you think about it, I got a couple hundred bucks. Okay. I built a career with that. So it's, it's, you know, it's it's paid off big time, (laughs) but it took 52 years, 53 years. And God, thank God I'm still here. The band that uses it has made billions. The record company has made hundreds of millions, you know? So it, in a, in a, a lot of times, and I'm a real advocate for artists, um, who really got robbed. They got the short end of the stick. You know, we've talked about that. I mean, they take what we've done and they make a lot of money on it and they pay us very little. And, you know, but that's all part of it. You know, I think I can't let that bother me. I can't say, and we talked about this, I can't get paranoid about that. Yeah, I'm going to do this logo for the Rolling Stones and they're going to make all this money and I'm not going to make anything. I never, that ever even crossed my mind. And I was a Beatles fan. I wasn't really a Rolling Stones fan. I loved the Beatles, you know, uh, and, and, the, and the Canyon bands and stuff and the San Francisco bands. That was what I was really into. And the Rolling Stones were always the bad boys and the Beatles were the good guys. You know, and it came from as a kid in Westerns, the good guys wore white and, and rode white horses and the bad guys wore black and rode black horses. You know, and it, it's just that conditioning that we've all had put into us, you know, that, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, it does it for me. And, and so, you know, doing that Rolling Stones, when I went on the interview, I showed the Dolls Alive package. And what you see below there on that piece of paper is a sketch that the guy that I was interviewing with had done. Because he had seen, I didn't know he had seen the other logo. So he just said, well, you know, you take those lips that you did there and put a tongue on the outside of those, and I think I can sell that to Marshall Chess. So that's what I did. I went upstairs to his art department, put a tongue on the outside of the lips, put some teeth on it, came back downstairs. He went off to Andy Warhol's factory and sold it to the Rolex to Marshall Chess. And that's how it happened. I also got hired by the company. And part of what I did with that logo is all the merchandise. And what you can see back here is a sample of the Licks. Uh, came up with the name Licks, wanted it to look like jockey underwear, you know, with the, the way jockey was written with the blocks uh, in the letters, because that's what embroidery did. And so we created Licks and I did a, a counter display what you see there in the jeans is a two-color counter display with a sleeve that slips down into it that's got all these little cloisonne pins on it and then you know they would sit on the counter in a record store and people would buy the cloisonne pins and so i created all that i created big foil die cut tongues red black and silver for uh for record stores that would go on the walls big big logos and and all kinds of stuff, roach clips and patches and everything that you could name. You know, I put that tongue on. So for months and months. And then, you know, at that time, I also did a few other albums. There's a Melanie album. Melanie was huge, you know, and I was a big fan of hers because I liked Joan Baez. I liked Judy Collins. I liked that kind of music. And Melanie was that. And I got a chance to, while I was working at Craig Braun, uh, Peter Shakiric, was Melanie's uh, manager and her husband. And he was good friends with the guy that I was working for. The guy that I worked for had friends for a very limited amount of time until they couldn't do anything for him anymore. And then they they were cast aside and you go on to the next friend. Part of the reason why my partner and I left that company was because that that shouldn't be how you run a business. So we decided, like I told you uh, that night, that no matter who we went to work for, it would be the same thing. 
So we needed to work for ourselves and it worked out because when I met Peter and did the, uh, the album and it's gather me, the gather me album, um, we became friends. He would come up at the art department, hang out. He'd hang out upstairs more than downstairs with the sales guys and Craig. So we became good friends. And when we moved to, to California and started Pacific Pioneer, he came to us and used us for two more Melanie albums. You know, we had that a lot. The guy that we had left didn't get a lot of repeat business. And the only reason why he got the next Cheech and Chong album after Big Bamboo, which I did when I was working there, was because we... And we'll be talking about this down the road in another episode. But after Big Bamboo, I did an album. Um, and, and I'll tell you the story about that in a minute. But, you know, after we did this album, um, we had become friends. My partner had become friends with Lou Adler. And they came back to us. Uh, Cheech and Chong and Lou Adler came back to us with the next album called the Cheech and Chong All-American Drug Dealing Game, which we titled. And it was a game. It was like uh, in the in the 60s, there was a, a game, the pothead game called Dealer McDope. OK, he was a cartoon character in one of the Zap comics and they made this dope dealing game and you could buy it and you everybody <laughs> would play. It was like Monopoly. So we came up with this idea to do a dope dealing game, an international dope dealing game for Cheech and Chong called the International Dope Dealing Game. And it came in a box like the Jesus Christ Superstar album. And it had a record and a sleeve. But there was also a big game board that folded out and all the money and the coins and the, and the, and the moving pieces and the dice. I mean, it was awesome. And what happened was, and we were $25,000 into the photo sessions. We shot Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, all of Lou Adler's movie friends were in because on the front cover, it was my house in Silver Lake being, it was this old Victorian house being surrounded by police. There were like 20 cop cars up on the lawn and bullhorns and guys with guns. And, and on, in the back cover, was Cheech and Chong going down the climbing out the window, taking all the drugs and the money with him, running away. And when you open up the album, it was this huge drug dealing game with all these different people from all these different countries. And, you know, they were uh, Dean Stockwell was in there, all these Hoyt Axton, you know, all these acts that were on owed records and were friends of Lou Adler's from the movie business like Jack Nicholson. You know, and so we got a chance that we did all this photography and then Lou Adler and my partner got into a, a testosterone standoff and it went ugly. And so they killed the whole project and went back to the company that we had worked for. And they did that album where they're in a car and there's pot stuffed in the I forget even forget the name of it, uh, but they were pot, pot stuffed in the door panels and stuff. And they were both in the car dressed like women, I think, or something. I don't know. Anyway, so they did that album. That was the only act that I had done work for at that company that didn't come back to us for the next album. You know, all the other ones, did, Grand Funk, Alice Cooper, all these other ones came back to us. Melanie, Smackwater Jack, Quincy Jones. That was another album that I did when I was working for that company. And all they gave me was a photograph of Quincy. And that's what you see there. And it was really boring. So I designed that logo for him. Well, the logo will come later because it's, it's this logo is just lettering that I did real quick. But I actually designed a Quincy Jones logo that he still does to this day, uses to this day. I also did the, uh, uh, there was a uh, $600 in a Mule, which was a musical that he put on that Quincy produced. And uh, it was about black people after slavery getting, you know, $600 a mule and an acre of land. You know, and so it was this musical about that. And I did a logo for that. So I've done two or three projects for Quincy. Really nice guy. And 
Part of the reason that, that I got hired is because at the time that these album covers were happening, I think I told you before, board packaging for albums became a big thing. And so the guy that I worked for, he wasn't a designer. He wasn't an artist. He was a salesman. He sold stickers to put on records that said this album contains a hit single. He also made a lot of money buying board packaging from the printer and selling it to the record company as a broker. The record companies weren't buying directly. So my job on top of designing stuff for him was make sure that everything that I designed would have to be printed on a board package. It couldn't be printed on paper wrapped to board because the tolerances weren't there to do embossing and die cutting and stuff. Ernie, did you ever get like something from the record company or from the artists themselves and you looked at it and you're like, what the hell am I going to do with this? So sometimes I was hard pressed. I mean, what do you do with a picture of Quincy Jones? And it's pretty boring. And so I had a friend in uh, Oakland that I went to college with that had sent me a bunch of transparencies. He was a great photographer. That was one of his shots. And I took that and put it in together. And then the, the, the whole inside of his shirt, the trees and all that is embossed and debossed. Mm-hmm. So there's a textural thing to it. And it had to be printed on a board package. You know, so there was a lot of that going on, you know, and another example of that was another album that I didn't put up here was and all these albums were on board uh, was the um, the Grand Funk Railroad. E Pluribus Funk was a big silver coin. And I did that printed on board, you know, uh, so board packaging was really the thing. And it's really funny because when we left, my partner and I, uh, who was his vice president and head of sales and his production guy who bought all the printing from the printers and gave it to him to mark up and sell to the record companies, left with us. There were three original partners of Pacific Ideas. But um, one of the things was that, um, you know, in doing that, we sort of kicked out the foundation from underneath this company. And, you know, he didn't have a creative director, didn't have a head of sales, didn't have a head of production. So it was very short-lived, his next company. He had formed a company with a guy named Tom Wilkes, who did the Monterey Pop Festival album. He did the Tommy album with the big ball, silver ball on the front on AM with the beautiful libretto. And, and he and I were, well, I mean, it wasn't so much on his part. I think I mentioned it was on, more on my part that I really held him responsible for taking credit for those three or four albums, especially the School's Out album that got nominated for a Grammy mm-hmm. um, for best album cover. He took credit for it. And I, and I hated him for a long time. We had a common friend who was a copywriter who wrote a lot of copy for us. And he knew of my feelings toward Tom. And he would always tell me, you know, you two should get together. You have great stories. He's a great guy. You'd really like, no, I don't want to meet him. The guy ripped me off and blah, blah, blah. So finally, we, he came over with Tom. And we hit it. We were, it was amazing. We hit it off right from the start. And he had great stories. And I had great stories. And, you know, he, um, he knew, he actually took an acid trip with the Beatles. And on that acid trip, they did a big poster. Each one of them had markers and pens and stuff. And each one of them took a section. All five of them took a section of this big poster and did art on it. Okay. And each one signed it and gave it to him. And he kept it for years, years and years. And then he decided, well, he needed some money. So he decided that he was going to reproduce it at limited quantity. So he went into partners with this printer who screwed him. And not only did he screw him, he also had it signed up so that when they broke up, the the printer got the artwork. So artists always get taken, you know, I mean, they really do. 
And, and so I'm, I, like I said, I'm a big advocate, but Tom and I hit it off really well. And, you know, and then he actually passed away a bunch of years ago, but I really became a good friend, you know? Nice. And then what you also see down here is uh, up here on the other corner is uh, an ad that I did that was in Rolling Stone magazine for the licks. It's a pair of breasts with the, medallion hanging in the middle and i did this quick airbrush thing and it was in rolling stone magazine for a bunch of issues promoting licks the you know the because you could buy them yeah the guy had a, a company called rock creations and he sold one of the things that was uh, a caveat to the rolling stones thing and nobody really knows this and this is going to be an exclusive on musicians and beyond he was he gave that logo that i did to the stones for free and in return they gave him the licensing rights for one year on that logo. Nope. So we did, he did patches, he did roach clips, he did, <laughs> you name it, he did everything you could possibly do in that year. And he made a lot of money doing it. So, you know, I mean, that's something that nobody knows. And there'll be another nice juicy little tidbit on the next show when we talk about how we were uh, wooed by a printer who really didn't like the guy we were working for. And, didn't like them so much that they helped finance Pacific Ironier in the beginning to, to start our company, you know, and that's a great story in that itself. Like and, it. and, you know, nobody's ever really heard that story. So we'll save that for next yeah, time. Let's, let, let's hear that next time. Uh, Ernie, yeah. when you do work on all these album covers, do you mm -hmm. work alongside the bands themselves or their management or are some of them stand off? And just yeah, uh, I, I, I usually, well, when I was working with this guy, he would work with record companies because he already had an affiliation with them selling them printing and stickers for their albums, you know. Um, and so he already had an in. He could go to the person that would give him the project. So, you know, he would work with record companies. And then um, we would work mainly after his company and we started Pacific Ironier, we started working directly with the management like Phil Walden and Capricorn Records. Next time we're going to be talking about that association and how all that became something really monumental. And and the, the stories that Phil Walden had about he used to manage Otis Redding and he would tell us amazing stories about, you know, in the South touring with a black act and he's a white guy, English you know, and all these crazy stories that you know, that he had. And, and we, and again, that's where I met Nick Dickie Betts from the Allman brothers. I did some work for him. I did work with captain beyond who was the reformation of iron butterfly, you know, and I did uh, a few other acts like wet Willie, which is, uh, is a great act as well. And so, you know, it was when I worked for somebody else, it was usually working for the marketing director or the creative director at the record company. Okay. When we started Pacific Ironier, the record company, because now we weren't selling printing and we weren't selling stickers to these people. We were a design firm and we didn't really have any kind of equity with them. I mean, there were a few, you know, uh, and there was a lot of work that was promised by the guy we came out to California for from A&M Records that never materialized. He was good friends with Gil Friesen, who was running the label for Lou Adler and, and Jerry Moss. Um, so that work never materialized. And you know, in that part of it, we had to do something because we, I was here for three months and my deal was I was going to be there for three months, set up an art department in the company that my partner, who was his vice president, was going to set up. And then I was going back to New York to work 
in, as a creative director in the New York office. It takes a really special type of person to, you know, go through the everyday chaos of New York. Uh, how did you deal with that? Because I love New York. I, I didn't want to come back to California. New York was like, my God, I went there and it was like, where where's this been all my life? I was like, you know, I remember the first time I went from Brooklyn on the F train into Manhattan and I went to uh, I went to 42nd Street and I got out. And I was standing with my portfolio in the doorway that went out into the street. And it was like the Matrix when he's saying we need to see weapons and all these things are going like that. And it stops and there's all the, it was like that, this energy that was just going. And it was like this and people and I'd never seen anything like that. And I just I remember just going first. I was like, oh, my God. This is more than I ever dreamed of. And then it was like, well, you're here. Let yourself go. And I just sort of went into it and it just sucked me right in. I had became an instant New Yorker. It was moving at the pace that I always moved at. Even when I was in San Jose, everybody else was kicked back. I was like always in, you know, second gear, you know, just really pushing it. We sponsored, Beck sponsored the after game show for the Yankees. And we got to go to a bunch of games. We would sit in the, the box, the, the suite they had with all the catered food and everything, right behind home plate. And they always put a retired Yankee in the booth with us to uh, talk about the game and different things. That, and one of the times it was, and I forget the guy's name, but he was the catcher that hit the home run that won the World Series for the Yankees. And I forget what year it was. It had to be in the 70s, I think, or 80s, whatever it was. But it was a great experience because more than that, we got a chance to go. When we went into Yankee Stadium, we went in through the same door and entrance that the players would go through. And when you go through that play, that there's all these glass cases and things hanging on the wall, old uniforms, Babe Ruth's mitt, you know, that look like a funky mitt and baseball bats and all this memorabilia from the history of the Yankees. And, you know, they're the only team that doesn't have the individual's names on the backs of their jerseys. And that's because they're a team. They're not an individual. And they promote that. And I always like that. I like that. And I don't know whether they I stopped following baseball except for the World Series. I don't know if they're still the only ones that did it. But back then, they were the only team that never had the individual's names on the bats because it was all part of And there was never a B player. Every player on that team, whether he sat on the bench or played every inning, could be a starter on any other team. They didn't put any B players in with the A players. And that's why they were such a winning team. They were, and I was a, a Milwaukee Braves fan. I was born in Milwaukee when I was like seven or eight. My uncle bought me the entire uniform with the cleats and the warm-up jacket and the hat and everything. So, you know, I, I was a Milwaukee Braves fan, but had become a New York Yankee fan. And, you know, going there and working for Bex. I mean, this was probably eight or nine years ago. So I had already left New York, come back to California, started Pacific Gun Air, got through that. And I went to work for a, a guy that hired me at Nestle was one of the smartest marketing people I've ever known. And he took me with him as did a few of the other people that I worked with, because they were all marketing people and they were coming up and they were in Glendale and we were right there. We we're the smallest agency on their approved render list. And so a lot of them cut their teeth at Nestle and went on to other things, bigger and better. Nestle was like a, like a grow your, grow yourself and learn everything and then move on. You know, and so he did. He took me to two or three other places and InBev was one of them. 
and they're the largest beer company in the world. Yeah. And we worked for them for three years. In fact, we did a bunch of cool stuff. The Becks, we were doing Bass, Cellar Artois, Becks, Rolling Rock, Kokanee. But we did a lot of really cool stuff with um, with Becks. We actually got them to put on concerts. We hired LL Cool J to do some things. We you know, would have these events and stuff. We really made it your, from your grandfather's beer to being a very cool contender. And people, we actually did things like, talk about disruptive, uh, the team, there was like six of us. And we all decided that the beer was terrible. It tasted too, way too bitter. And Americans don't like bitter beer on a whole. Okay, so we did all these secret focus groups where we would go to Chicago, we went to New Orleans, we went to all these and focus groups to find out what they felt about the beer level or the bitter level. And we found out that that was the case. So what we did was one of the guys on the team had been there before we all came. And the change that happened was this marketing guy and myself and three or four other people. Um, and the, the guy that we, he kept on the team was a German kid who had been with the brand for years. And he had all these connections with the brewery in Germany. So what we did was we sent uh, messages to the brewery that they needed to lower the, the bitterness level. Now, we never asked permission because you would have never gotten it because, oh, it's against the integrity of the beer and the beer is this and that and you can't mess with it. And so we just went and did it. We changed it. And then we did all these other focus groups and people loved it. We put it out there. It was selling like crazy. And then the marketing guy that hired us all went and told management that that's what they had done. Mm -hmm. And it was great. No, nobody. But if we would have asked permission, it would have never happened. You know, happens a lot in corporate America. You know, you you, you beg forgiveness and, instead of asking permission mm -hmm. because there's just too many levels of idiots that you have to go through. And that was one of the cool things about the record business. The, the groups weren't really idiots. The groups knew what they were doing. They knew their music. They knew that if they saw something that they liked, they knew it. They didn't have to go to a focus group or a marketing person, you know, the manager. And the manager did whatever the group wanted, you know. So it was it was great for us. Corporate America was a whole different trip, and we're going to talk about that in upcoming episodes, but it was a whole different world, you know. And like you said at the beginning of this, John, went from corporate America to music back to corporate America. I mean, if you just did a broad stroke underline, that's really – and now it, it's pretty much 95% corporate America. And you've mentioned Pacific Eye and Ear. That is your business – yeah. And for our listeners, if you go to their website, you can buy, like, there's original things, there's prints right from Ernie himself. He will sign them. In, yeah, and they're made from the original. <clears throat> Nobody else in the world can make that statement. They, they can sell you a Welcome My Nightmare poster, but it's not from the original because there's only one original and I have it. Right. Right. So and, it's a re-screen re thing. So I, I promote the fact that they're directly from the original. Say. And they're... Very reasonably priced. Yeah, the prints, yeah, they start at $35. Yeah, I you mean, know? where can I mean, you get something right from the guy who designed it, Ernie Schaefer? Right. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's the guy. I know him pretty well, and I can get him to sign <laughs> yeah. in. He's an idiot. He seems He's like a idiot. hell of a guy, too. Oh, man, I keep him locked up. Damn. I only let him out when I need to feed him or I need to <laughs> have him sign something. Right. Other than that, he stays under the covers. Ah, yeah, I worked that one in yeah, pretty good, didn't I? I love it. All under right. the covers. See that? Under the covers. There you go. Ernie, at, at Pacific and Ionia, what's the largest number of uh, employees that you've had? That's, that's a good question. Uh, 
Well, we started out with just three of us. And at a certain point, we never really wanted it. I always made the comparison between Pacific Ioneer and bands. Mm -hmm. Most bands start out in a garage. They get members. They're gigging. They play local things, high school dances and, you know, county fairs and stuff. And Pacific Ioneer was like that. We were a small, very tight unit. We There were like at one point when we were doing all the album covers, the really heavy duty stuff, I had six illustrators and three people in there was there were five illustrators and a production guy mm -hmm. and three people in sales and administration we got up to 11 people at one time and it was just too much yeah. it was too many people we didn't and and the band thing that the analogy i was making was i always think of nirvana you know i heard an interview with kurt cobain where he was talking about how they never really wanted to be a big band they loved just being a small band just gigging and doing stuff and what they loved and then, then the next thing you know they're this huge band. I mean, they're one of the biggest things in music. And he never really wanted it to be that. And I, I always make comparisons between Pacific Ioneer and its growth to bands because we were mainly in the music business. So there was this great analogy to make between what I saw them going through and experiencing because I would you know, go into recording studios. I would go on tour with them. I'd go to concerts and you get to know them. And even like when Alice was in L.A., the group was in L.A. recording or whatever, you know, Glenn Buxton would come over all the time. He'd come over to the house. We'd go to the horse. He liked horse racing. He liked movies. So we'd go uh, to movies into the Hollywood Park and stuff. I mean, he was just a great guy, you know, and, and Dennis, you know, and, and I got to know all Neil and, and you know, Michael, the, the guitar player, Michael Bruce. And, you know, and then Alice himself. I mean, we. You know, we, I was closer probably to Glenn than any of them, you know, uh, and, you know, that's a, that was a crazy band, you know, and that whole experience with them was really something. And it really put us in the limelight, you know, and, and I think I'd mentioned before, Shep Gordon and Alice Cooper were the best salespeople we ever had. The groups were constantly going to him looking for management and stuff, and he'd direct them toward us. You, know, you need an album cover. You should go see these guys. You know, they were the best salespeople we had. Alice, too. I've got two or three magazines, one Cream, and I forget the other. Cream magazine was a big one, and there were a couple others that um, were music magazines, and there's articles. The Cream magazine I have has a four-page article on Alice Cooper, and he's a big, there's like half a page where he's talking about working with me and, and, and Pacific Ioneer and how that was great and this great synergy that we had. You know, those kind of things were really great, you know, and and I, I hold those dear to myself. I mean, those were experiences that I never dreamed that I would experience. And yet they played an important part in my career. It's funny how things happen like yeah. that. You know? In that article that just came out in Goldmine Magazine by Ivor Levine, that's a 20-page spread. And for all of our listeners, I think you should definitely pick it up because it really gives you the insight uh, Ivor talks to musicians themselves who give quotes and everything, and it really paints yeah. an incredible picture. And yeah, well, he's been working on that article. He's been working on it as a book, but he's been working on that article he's, since I first met him at the museum show in Glendale. Um, and he, it's probably six or seven years. He's been putting these pieces together, and then we were planning on putting it all in the book. And we're about 100 pages into the book, 150 pages into the book. And then all of a sudden, um, this Goldmine magazine opportunity. He pitched it, got it, and now they're they're coming out with. Uh, and I don't know. I, I guess I can say this. They sold out. I'm I'm selling faster than Henry Diltz, the photographer that did all the Woodstock stuff, who has one, the Rolling Stones, and Led Zeppelin. My 
ones are selling faster than theirs. And a part of that is because there isn't anything that you can say about any of those people that people don't already know. You know, my stuff is like they're learning stuff that they never knew. So and that 20 page article helps and the covers and stuff. But, you know, it kind of uh, interesting how that is happening and it's building momentum. And, you know, I'm just so pleased that this is all happening and I, and I never expected it. He went and pitched this, and I never knew. You know, Ernie, yeah. i got to say, you know, John mentioned it, and it's, it's the quality of conversation that he has. The way the out that the uh, conversation structured in Goldmine, you know, for the listeners out there that want to go pick it up, do so because you're going to get you treated to something that, that the way they structured it, each album has, uh, Ivor goes into a conversation not about, not, not just with you, but with band members, with other people in the industry, and they all talk about how the album cover itself came together and the stories behind it. It's a really, really interesting way to piece it together, and uh, it, it's really informative and uh, a really great piece. Thank you. Yeah, and, you know, I, w- the slipcase versions, all the ones, they, they took, I think, 30 of them out of the 200 and, and, and made them with all 10 prints mm-hmm. in them. For $126, those sold out in tw- within 24 hours. Yeah. So those are gone. I know someone and, got one. I did not, but someone jumped yeah, online. Yeah I, yeah, I didn't get one either. <laughs> I didn't get one either. But that's okay. I got I got the other the slipcase with the individual print. But, and some of those are still available. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think three or four of them are sold out, but there's 10. Um, and you can get the newsstand. You can order the newsstand one with just the girl with the record. And that's like $10 or, so, or something. So, you know, and it's the same magazine that's in all of them, yes. whether it's the slipcase with one print, whether it's a slipcase with uh, all of them. And now what happened was I got reached out to a week or so ago and was asked if I would be willing to make five more, one through 20 images that were all on the the cover that's that uh that has all the the ones in the slip case it has a different cover than the one that's on the newsstand and so out of those covers there's still five or six that were never made as the original 10 prints 20 each so now they're going to come out with another you can buy all five in one or you can buy five individually because we just made a bunch more prints for them because they, I think they see that it's selling and they want to be able to sell magazines, sure. you know, and I don't blame them. I, I'm very honored and, and just so pleased that it's doing well, you know. Yeah, it's great that you're making old new again, as, yeah. as you say. Yeah, and, I'm, that's you know, that. You're absolutely right. You and I talked about that, and, John. It's, it's taking it and it's like finding that moment in the sun. As long as you show up and before the sun comes out and you're there when it shines in that spot, that's, that makes it. That makes it every day. Right. You know, and I try to do that every day. And when I do, it works out great. I mean, it, things just keep coming. Things come. I don't even have to sell anymore. They come. Right. It's a good thing I don't have to sell because I don't know when to stop and I buy it all back. So <laughs> it's better. You know, since I didn't have a partner that was was great having partners in sales, the first one was the greatest. The other two were not so good. But uh, the first one, my partner, Tony Graboy, was amazing. Yeah. He graduated college at 16. I think I had mentioned that the CIA wanted to hire him. They wind him and dined him, flew all over, taking all these tests and stuff. And he said, "No, I can make more money in marketing." So he went to work at Craig Braun. Really good-looking guy, you know, smart, smart, and just a great salesman, you know. And he passed away five or six years ago. So we had a falling out, and I never. He, I'm Italian, and so I, I keep grudges forever, and sometimes that's a bad thing. 
and he tried reaching out through mutual friends for years, you know, to, to, cause we had a great, it was great. It was like Simon and Garfunkel, you know, they had a great time. And then, or any of those teams yeah. or groups, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, they were great together, you know I mean? But separately they were never really as big as they were together. And I, my partner, you know, would always say that and I felt it, but I just wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not be friends with him again because of everything that happened. So that, and that's a whole nother story that, you know, maybe we'll tell someday, but you know, it was like being a band again, like being a band and the band's doing great. And then all of a sudden there's problems. You know, I once asked Burton Cummings, why, why is so many groups break up? And he said, well, mainly a big reason is because the royalties stopped coming in. The guy who wrote it keeps getting paid, but everybody else doesn't. So that causes animosity. And I think that happens in companies as well. Sure. You know, my partner was a great salesman, but in, in his heart, he wanted to do what I did. <clears throat> and that, you can't do that. You know, there has to be just one of us. Right. And so that caused a lot of problems. And then because he had gone to college so young, he had real problems with girls because no girl in her age, 18, 19, 20 wants to date a 14 year old kid. Right. You know, so he had real problems with that. And because he was really good looking and everything, but he just really had. And then he met someone and it was like a couple of years before the company ended and it got real ugly, real ugly right away. You know, it was like Yoko Ono comes into the group <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, are you kidding? I saw this video. Somebody posted it on Facebook and it was like Chuck Berry and he's playing with John Lennon and some of the other and Yoko's beating on a drum and then she starts singing and Chuck Berry's face is like, what the heck is that? And she's like, ah, 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 screaming and yelling. She was awful, man. And it was like, and it, the captions and watched their faces and all of them, the guys in the background are like, what the hell is that? You know? So my partner's girlfriend was like the Yoko Ono in the Pacific Ironier legend. So, you know, but it was, things happen for a reason and they happen sometimes, even though you don't want them to happen, you know, it's, it's trying to make the best out of what happens. And, and I, I've always been able to do that. You know, I always say, you know, you knock me down. I'm going to keep getting up. The only way you're going to keep me down is kill me because I'm going to keep getting up. I don't quit. I just don't quit. I never have. You know, Bonnie taught me that, you know, and, and it was a lesson that, you know, it sunk home big time. And I still think about it all the time. We've talked about it. It's something that yeah. changed my life. Best thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. Really amazing. And, and then there are you guys. You know, there you yeah. go. Yeah, the second yeah, best that's, thing that's ever happened. There you go. And, and you know, I, I think it's appropriate to give a shout out to to uh, Joyce Conroy for yeah. you know what she does for you. She she's got an incredible show called The Block Party, and she's got Ernie's Corner. And yeah. you know, she comes in and, and does an interview similar to ours, and and she's got a lot of great insight right. too. And um, you know, it's it's yeah, great she's to, a real educator. Yeah. You know, she's an educator. She's been a disc jockey for years. She quit it because it got too bureaucratic. And her and her husband took over the block party, which is something that already existed. It existed for quite a while. And now it's growing. And uh, they've been doing it. And and um, I reached out to her as a friend on Facebook. And then she started, we started communicating back and forth. And she asked if I would, you know, do an episode, do an interview on block party. And that interview turned into uh, Ernie's Corner it's every Saturday, but her thing is a little bit different than what we're doing here because it's, she plays music and she educates, you know, she'll play a song 
She knows every member of that band, where they went, how they evolved on, what they're doing now. I mean, she just knows all that stuff. And so there, it's a, a like what I talk about. It's an educational process, and she learns a lot from me, and I learn a lot from her. And it's a great situation. It's like what we have. You guys are really great, and and I'm very blessed to be able to be on here with you guys. And I take it very serious. Yeah. And you know, I hope that we all can benefit from this. Ernie, uh, where can they find Joyce Conroy's show, Block Party? Where where is it? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, you can go on my Facebook page uh, or her Facebook page and. It's uh, got a link. Okay. And, and it's on every Saturday. It's a three-hour show. No, no kidding. And, yeah. And it starts out, I think, with a, there's a country segment uh, for an hour and then two hours of her. And and I started out with a, like a five-minute thing. And now it's up to 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you guys. It's like 20 I, I minutes. I can't see how that happens. <laughs> yeah, I know. Huh? I just know when to shut up. But, and, uh, and she also has yeah, a video and, out, too, right? On, on YouTube, you can watch uh, yeah. the video clips. Yeah. And I've watched yeah. a couple and of I those, and it's, Some you know. people can only hear it, and then some people can hear it and see it. I'm not sure how all that works. Right. But I know she's through uh, junior colleges and three different states. Yeah. You know, that, that she's uh, in. And then, of course, Facebook, you know, yeah. I mean, in posting those yeah. uh, segments of Ernie's Corner on there. Yeah. You know, I, it's just great. I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm really getting I'm, I'm, I'm really able to tell these stories because once I'm gone, they're gone. You know, and I, I don't want that to be that way. You know, that's why I, I'm very blessed to have people like you and Joyce yeah. in my life that are willing to let me come on and, you know, yeah, we're on it. Ramble, ramble on. So no, we're, we're honored to have you. I mean, like I said before, <laughs> you are a true history maker. And if we can be any part of preserving this history, I mean, the honor is well, all I, ours. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot more great stuff to talk about. And I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, we'll just you know, we'll leave it at that until next time. Yeah. We need a cliffhanger, though. You know, there needs to be a cliffhanger. I think we get a cliffhanger with what happens next. You know, what happens with Pacific Ioneer? How did that really happen? How did it go from being very, very secure? And when, when we started Pacific Ioneer, Tony was, I told you, he was a fish out of water. He was a New Yorker. He was born there, grew up there. I was from California already, San Jose, Northern California. So I was kind of used to it. And, you know, when we left Craig, I mean, we were both kind of just out there. And he was, you know... We didn't have he didn't have any of his connections here. Most of his connections were in New York. Lou was in New York, was the head of production. And so we were all kind of working. Tony and I were in one place. Lou was in another. And, you know, but it all it all just it was necessary. It was necessary to happen and how it all happened and, and how we grew it, you know, and how I mean, there, there was a point where all we would do is come in, turn on the lights, put on the record player and start working in the phone would ring. We didn't even have, I mean, Tony didn't have to sell. He'd just be there getting calls and sitting up appointments and going to see Black Sabbath at the <clears throat> mansion they rented in Beverly Hills. And, you know, all this crazy stuff, going to the studio with Alice and Lou Reed. And, you know, I mean, it was just a crazy time, you know, and never really once stopped to think, wow, this is going to be amazing. Someday people are really going to talk about this. Well, it was they're going to talk about it right then, and then it'll be lost in time. Well, that's a good segue because we're going to talk about it on our next episode, how it started, how it ended, uh, where, where it went, and how it went with Ernie yeah. Sheffalo, our friend, and we're looking forward to the next conversation. Until next Thank time, you, Ernie. Guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much.